morning, we are going to read from um, John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. If you are able, if you can stand with us while we read God's words. He went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your, short, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, let's pray together. Father, um, we come before you and uh, we ask for your mercy. We ask for your grace. Uh, we ask for you to open the eyes of our hearts to see Jesus, to see him in the midst of his weakness, but to be able to discern his power, his glory his grace, his caring heart for us, his faithfulness, his truthfulness. Help us to see the wonders uh, in his person. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of the, the earliest views of the atonement, atonement is just a fancy word for death of Christ on behalf of our sins, right? Some of the very earliest views of the atonement uh, for the sins of mankind were made famous and really emphasized by one of my favorite dead old guys, dogs as I like to call them. His name is Irenaeus of Lyons, and uh, I'll give two of his kind of theories. One of the theories of the atonement, or aspects, was capitulation, right? That's a really, don't really say it 10 times, but I'm it's a really, really fancy word. Um, and the idea here of recapitulation is that Jesus relives and reconstitutes out the life of Adam and of Israel. He goes back through these steps in which Israel was supposed to obey God and bring him glory, where Adam was supposed to obey God and bring him glory. And Jesus actually does obey God and bring him glory. And he's doing it on behalf of Adam, or he's doing it on behalf of Israel. So Adam was meant to worship God and resist Satan, but he didn't in the garden. Israel was meant to worship God and resist Satan, but they didn't from the latter half of Exodus all the way through the end of the Old Testament. Jesus, however, did worship God and resist Satan at every 
level imaginable. Jesus is the new and final Adam. A second theory that Irenaeus made kind of famous, uh, and again, these guys are taking it from the Bible, so don't think that they like made this stuff up. They're getting it straight from the Bible. A second theory of the atonement or aspect of the atonement was called Christus Victor, Christ the Victor. And this theory emphasizes that in Jesus' death, in his suffering and his death and in his resurrection, he vanquishes the powers of darkness and he defeats Satan as his enemy. There's a third one that I wanted to talk about that's also going to kind of show up in our text. This isn't Irenaeus, but this is another dead old guy named Athanasius. Some of you might be familiar with him. You guys call him Anastasia because, yeah, that's what we do. There's a couple guys that read Athanasius' book. They always call him Anastasia for some reason. Uh, he made uh, another theory famous called substitutionary atonement, sometimes called penal substitutionary atonement, that Jesus stands in the place, the law place of us, and takes the punishment that we deserve, right? So we've finished Jesus' upper room discourse in chapters 13 through 17, and now we're turning to Jesus' death and resurrection. John, like all of the other Gospels, slows down drastically and becomes even more detailed when we get to the final week of Jesus's life. And so every gospel writer, including John, he's looking at us and he's saying, hey, okay, so we covered Jesus's birth. It's like a little blip. Luke throws in a little story about when he's 12, right? And then we know nothing about him until he's about 30. And then we get a kind of unfocused detailing of his three years ministry. But then when we arrive to his last week, all four gospels sync up and they go, focus. We're going to talk about every little detail. And this is the Bible's way of saying to us that what is significant about his ministry is about to happen, his death and his resurrection. And we need to really slow down and we need to focus on that. Our text today reads as a narrative that's abrupt, coolly logical, and to the point. Uh, you can kind of see this in a sevenfold use of, in Greek, it's the word so. We've translated it in multiple ways. So look at verse 3. Verse 3, you see, so, Judas. Then look at verse 4, the word then. That's the same word. Then look at verse 6 with me. And you see when. That's also the same word. Then look at verse 7 with me. You see so again. Then look at verse 8. You see so again. And then look at verse 10. You see then again, and then verse 11, you see so again. It's a very logical, this happens, so then 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 this happens. So happen. It reads like a kind of chess match of moves and counter moves between perhaps Judas and Jesus here. And from this text, we're going to find three points that are also going to emphasize different aspects of Jesus's death different views of the atonement for sins. So today we're going to see that Jesus is our new Adam, and this is going to be the recapitulation theory, that thing that we can say 10 times fast. We're going to then see that Jesus is Yahweh in our flesh, clothed with our humanity, is Jesus is our wrath drinker, and this is going to be penal substitutionary atonement.
So the aim and goal of this sermon throughout the week, the aim and specific practical application that you can make throughout the week, the aim and goal of this sermon is to put the person of Jesus on display and to think about his death and what it means for us. And the hope, right, with this sermon is that our faith benefits from that, that we grow in faith and trust and reliance upon Jesus' death on our behalf. So let's look at our first point. It's going to come from verses 1 through 3. Jesus is our new Adam. And this is the recapitulation theory. John writes this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So kind of this first emphasis from the text. Look at verse 1. His disciples. Jesus went out with his disciples. And then it ends. Which he and his disciples entered into a garden. Look at verse 2. Jesus often met there with his disciples. There's a lot of emphasis on his disciples. Now, why is John bringing that attention that these are his disciples? Well, there's, there's two reasons. One's going to be discussed a little bit later on in the text. But the second one is... This is foreshadowing this close-knit union that we see between Jesus and his disciples is quite literally about to be shattered momentarily, momentarily. We'll see the second reason for his disciples here. Look at verses 2 through 3. So if in verse 1, Jesus goes to the garden with his disciples, in verse 2 through 3, Judas goes to the same garden with Satan's disciples. Now, you might be like, oh, that's harsh. Satan's disciples? Judas, if you remember back to chapter 13 at the beginning of the Upper Room Discourse, he has quite literally been filled with Satan and has gone out to do his will. And so Judas is, in this case, standing in for Satan, and Jesus is obviously the Son of God. So one man goes to the garden to pray. This is where this is the Garden of Gethsemane. And another man goes to the garden to arrest Jesus. One man is God's son doing God's will. The other man is filled with Satan doing Satan's will, which for the reader, in our case, we know this to be God's will as well, which gives us a little bit of comfort. So let's, where do we get our point? Jesus is the new Adam. We get our point from one singular word. If you look at verse one again, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kedon, where there was a garden. That word garden opens up a mini theme in the book of John, which starts here, continues in 19, and ends in chapter 20. And this theme is where we're going to get our point that Jesus is the final Adam. So in chapter 18, garden occurs here. It also occurs a little bit later. Jesus is being, or sorry, Peter is being um, kind of questioned by someone. Hey, aren't you one of those guys that we saw in the garden with Jesus? And he's like, no, I'm not, right? And it's now. So garden shows up here in 18. In chapter 19, in verse 41, it shows up twice. It says this, now in the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in a garden, a new tomb 
which no one had been yet laid. The last place this garden word shows up is in chapter 20. The root of it shows up. Garden doesn't actually show up. The word gardener shows up. So in 20 verse 15, we find Jesus is now resurrected and Mary Magdalene is there and she doesn't recognize him. She's talking to this guy and it says in the text that she had supposed him to be the gardener. And then later on, right, he becomes recognizable to her. So this is significant. Garden imagery should bring us back to the very first story that the Bible tells, the Garden of Eden, right, where Jesus is essentially reliving out the story of Adam. Why introduce such a small theme and tie it so closely to Jesus's last week of ministry? Again, the answer is what Irenaeus emphasizes, recapitulation. Jesus here is reliving out that story of old, that story where in a garden, Satan also came to that garden to oppose a son of God and had victory over him. In this case, Jesus now is the son of God. Judas is playing the role of Satan. And it seems like Judas is going to win again. What's going on there? The war extends beyond him, his betrayal all the way to his death. So garden ties us to his betrayal, his death, his burial, and then it finally ends with his resurrection. I'm going to read something from Genesis 3.15 that we should have in our minds as we're going through this. Genesis 3.15 is the prophecy given by God to the serpent after the fall of Adam. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So again, this prophecy that one of the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent is the main storyline of all of the Bible. And John now picks up here in 18 with this reference back to the garden and saying, finally, here he is. This is the offspring of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. Cyril, another dead old guy that I love, Cyril of Alexandria, Alexandria says it this way, the place was a garden fulfilling the type of the original paradise. It was a recapitulation, there's that word, as it were, of places and a return, so to speak, of all things to their original condition. In paradise, the beginning of our, mankind, suffering occurred. And in the garden, the suffering of Christ received its beginning, which brought about the restoration from all that happened to us long ago. We see this Adam theme picked up by Paul, also in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to look there um, later on as well. All right, so before moving on, I want to just give two little textual points um, from this spot. Uh, the first one is a bit of irony, and then the second one is um, an interesting point that we need to kind of note. So the first one here is ironic. Look at verse 3 again. Judas shows up with a group of men with torches and lanterns. It's like, why is John being so redundant here? He could just say torches or lanterns. It's torches and lanterns. He's drawing our attention to this theme that Jesus is the light of the world. And now you have these men with their own little lights showing up to do battle in darkness against Jesus. And again, 
And John, darkness is always more than just, oh, it's nighttime. There's spiritual darkness. These are the enemies of God trying to slaughter the light of the world. A second quick note is the men that Judas shows up with. He shows up with officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. So this is representing the Jews. But he also shows up with a band of soldiers. And in Greek, it's the word cohort, which is likely drawing off of the Roman army here. So this group is likely made up of both Romans and Jews. And the, the point here, right, that John's trying to make is the entire world has a role to play in Jesus's suffering, death, and resurrection. Otherwise, his suffering, death, and resurrection doesn't have a role to play with the entire. From this first point that Jesus is the new and final Adam from verses four through nine. John writes this. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus said to him, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. So here we have a juicy steak. Four through nine is just, it's a steak. It's one unit. It belongs together. And in it, we get to feast on the person of Christ. We get to see the character of the Lord Jesus. So let me, let me point out to you why four through nine is just a tight unit that belongs together. Look at four and five. Four starts with... Jesus asking a question and then them answering and then it continues and then Jesus answers them and then it goes into verse six, which is a narration of what happens. Now look at verse seven. Starts with Jesus asking a question, them answering, Jesus then answering, and then verse nine is a narration. And so six and nine narrate what come before it directly and they belong directly um, together. Now look at another thing in here. Jesus says, I am he. How many times do you guys count in verses four through nine? I am he. Oh, wait, it's not rhetorical. Three. All right. Jesus says three times I am he, and it's central to the text. Verse five, verse six, and verse eight. So children, since this text right here, four through nine is focusing on the character of Jesus, um, I want to ask you guys a question from catechisms. All right, you ready? Question 21. What sort of redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? One who is truly human and truly God. Good job. All right, so one who is truly human and truly God. When we look at this text in verses 4 through 9, I want you guys to look for, do we see Jesus being proclaimed as truly human? Do we see Jesus as being proclaimed truly God? Because that apparently is the sort of redeemer that we need in order to save us from our sins. So let's look at what this text says. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 draws our attention to the knowledge of Christ. He knew all that was about to take place. Quite literally says that in our text. And this highlights for us that Jesus 
is courageous, that he is going into his suffering, into his death with his eyes wide open. There's no surprise that's about to happen to him here. He goes into the jaws of death, of pending doom, and he goes with his eyes wide open. Even though Judas has come to the garden here to betray Jesus, note who initiates the quote-unquote song and dance. Jesus looks at them and asks them a question. He's the one that makes the first move, even though they're coming to arrest him. And if Jesus knows all things that are about to happen, why is he asking that is about to happen to him? So let's look at this question because it's likely asked for the benefit of the soldiers and for Judas and for the officers. And it's also written there for our benefit as well. Whom do you seek? That's a good question for us to ask our own hearts. Whom do you seek? If we rephrase it another way, because they're seeking Jesus. Who is this Jesus that you seek? Well, verse 5 and 7, Jesus' answer when they ask him, hey, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, right? And he says, I am he. It, it shows us that quite literally from their vantage point, they are seeking a man, Jesus from the land of Nazareth or from the region of Nazareth. They are seeking a man. And so do we see Jesus as a man here with great knowledge? Do we see Jesus as truly man? All right, children, you're not off the hook. Question 22. That's after 21. Um, why must the Redeemer be truly human? That in human nature, he must the punishment for human sin. Good job. All right, so in our text, we see the man emphasized. They're coming to arrest a man. And our Redeemer must truly be a man. But what about verses 5, 6, and 8, that threefold I am statement here? This brings us to the crux, the, the pivot point, the center of our passage. Whom do you seek? And they ask Jesus of Nazareth. And then Jesus says, I am. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 narrates what happens. Jesus first says, I am. And then it says this. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, why on earth would they... I, you know, th this is how I picture it in my mind. They're in a garden. Jesus answered. He asks a couple questions. Then all of a sudden they're like, hey, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus responds, hey, I am Jesus of Nazareth. And then they fall down on their faces before him. What's going on there? Um, you would think they would just be like, all right, that's the guy. Go get him. I am is a significant theme, right? And John, I am references this first call to Moses from the burning bush where Yahweh gives his name to Moses. And he says, I am that I am. And Jesus now is doing a play on words. He's not just saying, hey, I'm that man, Jesus from Nazareth. He's saying, I am. I am Yahweh, the Lord. And it's as if the curtains for just a second, they, they spread open. And for just a second, Judas and the soldiers and the officers see the divine glory and they fall back on their faces like everyone should when they see the divine glory. But then what do they do? The curtain goes back, they get back up and they arrest him. In this passage, 
even at the point of arrest, Jesus looks at his enemies, reveals who he is, welcomes them again to recognize who he really is, that he is God. He's revealing his identity to his enemies. Behold the heart of Christ for the lost. Uh, commentator W. Temple writes this and comes from the different angle. He says this, we are the world to whom our God comes forth in the person of Jesus, the Nazarene, saying, who is it you want? The world is groping after its true leader. He offers himself, and the world, after yielding for a moment to the impact of his divinity, arrests him and crucifies him. Behold the heart of the lost for Christ. Verse 8 through 9 then moves on and says that Jesus is faithful and true. He says this, so if you seek me, let these men go. If you seek me, let these men go. Jesus is betrayed, arrested, and crucified quite literally in the place of his disciples in this point. He's faithful and true because if you want to flip back a page, look at verse 12 of chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer. Verse 12 in chapter 17, Jesus prays this in, in his prayer. He says, while I was with them, the disciples, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So back in 17, that he's not going to lose even one of them. And so he tells the man, he, in the text, he actually gives a command to Judas and his, his group. The, the command is, here I am. Take me, let these men go. Bruce Milne says it this way, the caring heart of Christ is our security. The caring heart of Christ is our security. He is faithful and true to his word and to his prayer. His care for his disciples is effective and carried out. Before moving on, remember that the structure of this passage centers around six as a narration of four and five and nine as a narration of seven and eight. So I want to real again, just visit six and nine again. So look at verse six. Here we see a glimpse of the power and the glory of Yahweh. I am that I am. We see for just a second, the enemies of God vanquished before Jesus's mere words of who he is, his identity vanquishes his um, enemies. And so here is actually a glimpse of a second theory of the atonement, Christ the victor. This is where Christ vanquishes the powers of darkness. Even though it looks like Jesus is about to lose, they fall on their faces just when he says, I am. He has all the power here. Everything is going according to Jesus's plan in this regard. Uh, P.T. Forsyth says this of Satan here, the devil is in the end a bull in a net, a wild beast kicking himself to death. If it's, a, it's as if Jesus is using his humanity to trick Satan, to, to, to allow Satan to think, I can defeat God here. I can kill God here. And when Satan goes through and does it, he doesn't realize that there's a hook of divinity that has now vanquished him, has pulled him out of the water of death and of sin and has caused his ultimate downfall. 
Look at verse 9 with me, that second narration. This is also bringing to our attention the divinity of Jesus. Six is more obvious. I am, they all fall down. Nine, less obvious. But look what this says. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Now, if you stop at the word word, all right, let's do that. This was to fulfill the word. You would kind of naturally think in John that what's about to follow is an Old Testament quote or an illusion. This was to fulfill the word spoken by that prophet Isaiah or that prophet Hosea. But instead of Old Testament divine scripture, we say this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken. Bruce Milne, again, is helpful here. He says this, interestingly, Jesus's words are cited in a way identical to the Old Testament quotations studied throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus is the Word of God who was made flesh, and his words are the words of God. And John here treats his words as such, and we too must treat his words as such. All right, so children, you're still not off the hook, sorry. So question 23 comes after 22. We saw his humanity. Now we're looking at his divinity. Why must the Redeemer be truly God? That because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. Is our wrath drinker. This is coming. Let's go to our third point. Jesus is our wrath drinker. This is coming from the final two verses, verses 10 through 11. John writes this, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? End quote. There's a kind of weapon theme going on in our text. At the beginning of our text, Judas the soldiers, the officers, they show up with some torches and weapons. At the end of our text, one of Jesus' own disciples also shows up with a weapon. Judas, right, is there to use his weapons to arrest Christ. Peter is there to use his weapons to defend Christ, which should look a little absurd when Jesus just says, I am, and all of his enemies fall down, right? Does he really need a weapon? Now, Peter, though his heart was good, he is classically misunderstanding what has to happen with the Messiah. Most of the Jews at this time thought the Messiah would come, reestablish a kingdom, sit on the throne of David forever, reestablish Israel amongst the nations. We're all good. Nobody anticipated that the Jewish Messiah had to die. And so Peter brings a dagger to defend the Jewish Messiah who has to die. Jesus, the word of God, brings words against all of these weapons. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, Dear Peter, though Judas is filled with Satan, this is God's design. Dear Peter, though I am arrested and betrayed on this night, this is God's design. Dear Peter, even though I'm going to be crucified on a cross, this too is God's design. And how much needed that last word. Dear Peter, on the third day, when I resurrect from the dead and live forevermore, this too is God's 
design. So let's look at the words he said to Peter. You know, first, put away that sword. I could, I could vanquish these guys with a word. I don't need a sword, right? But then the second phrase, the cup. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? What is this cup? What does cup mean here? Why is Jesus making this cup illusion? We see this in parallel gospels when Jesus is praying in Gethsemane and he says, Lord, please, if it's your will, take this cup from me. Well, now we, hear, we see the other side of that prayer here. He's prayed, he's strengthened, he's strengthened in his father's will. And now there's no question of, hey, take this cup from me. It's Peter, I've got to go drink this cup. It's my father's cup. So what is this cup? Cup language is used throughout the Old Testament, but particularly in the Psalms and in the prophets, particularly in Isaiah and in Jeremiah. And cup normally means suffering or death, but particularly in light of God's wrath against sin. God's wrath against sin. So let me give you an example. This is Isaiah 51. Pastor David this morning read Isaiah 53 as a part of our call to worship. Isaiah 53 is all about Jesus' death on the cross. And so just self, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Five verses later in Isaiah 51, in verse 22, it says this, behold, or sorry, thus says your Lord, Yahweh, your God, who pleads the cause of his people, behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. This is why in Luke, Jesus is described as sweating blood in the garden. This is why this cup comes up in, in right in the midst of his arrest. When Peter's trying to thwart the arrest, the cup language comes up. Because Jesus is drinking down the cup of God's wrath. Cup of God's wrath are for evil doers. So our question then becomes, why does Jesus, who did no evil, drink down a cup of wrath that only evil doers are to drink from? That Jesus stands in our law place that when we look at the law of God and we stand condemned under it, Jesus takes that place of condemnation so that we can have a place of celebration, of righteousness, of justification, of salvation, all the Asians. We can go through all the Asians. So children, I wanna ask one final question here. This is 24, following 23. Why was it necessary for Christ the Redeemer to die? Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin and bring us back to God. Thank you. So in our culture, of all of the aspects of the atonement, penal substitution seems to be the one that we have the most aversion to. We seem to be a little bit allergic to it. Perhaps it's the modern sensibilities that don't allow us to believe that truly some people deserve to die. So you can kind of look in culture, capital punishment arguments. Um, I'm not going to make one side or the other, but there's just a, a little cultural observation. Perhaps it's our, our culture's view of toleration 
where we've kind of taken toleration, we've merged it with, I have to agree with whatever you say, or at least I can't openly disagree with whatever you say. Perhaps it's our aversion to seeing God as not just loving and merciful, but also wrathful and just. It also could be that we don't view our sin rightly, our own personal sin, our own personal wrongs and evils that we have done rightly. We think ourselves to be good. Now, I don't think anybody in this church would say, I'm good. However, I don't know how many of us, including myself, really deal with the depths of the evil of our hearts to where we can actually say, yes, I am evil. And if God was to pour wrath on me, I deserve it because I am in rebellion against God. I want to remind us of Judas and the soldiers and the officers. Their role is our role in this story. We are not Jesus, the hero. We are not Peter, the defender. We are Judas without Christ and grace. We are the one who seeks to arrest and destroy the Son of God. Whether we realize it or not, we take our orders from Satan and the powers of darkness if we are apart from the grace of Christ. We could go through Matthew 5, the the Sermon of the Mount, where Jesus takes the law, the Ten Commandments, and he starts applying it in a very heart-like fashion to us, right? In Matthew 5, we see this idea, have we ever been unrighteously angry with a neighbor? Well, Jesus says we've murdered that person in our heart. Have we ever lusted for someone else? Well, we've committed adultery in our heart. If we take the law of God seriously and we applied it to ourselves rightly, we would all come to the same conclusion that we deserve the cup of God's wrath. John Flavel, um, in a sermon about this cup of wrath, writes about something called the Father's Bargain. And this is a conversation that Christ has, it's an imaginary conversation, that Christ has with his Father in light of the plight of humanity, that we are all under his just wrath and his condemnation. Now, I want to give a little side. It would pit the Father against the Son. Like the Father's the just guy who has to deal out the punishment and the Son comes into the rescue. That's not at all what the Bible teaches, right? The Father loved the world, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. So don't don't do that with this. But what you should see is the heart of Christ for sinners. And when we say sinners, we mean those who deserve God's anger, deserve God's wrath, deserve God's justice. And yet this is how the heart of Christ responds. So the father in this says this, he says, my son, here's a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? The son then responds, oh, my father, such is my love to and pity for them that rather than Bring in all your bills that I may see what they owe you, Lord. Bring them all in that there may be no after reckoning with them. At my hand, you shall require it. I will rather choose to suffer your wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all of their debt. The father responds, but my son, 
If you undertake for them, you must reckon to pay it to the last penny. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare you. Jesus then responds finally, Content, Father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it, and though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, yet I am content to undertake it. Jesus is our wrath drinker. So I stated at the beginning the aim and the goal of this sermon was to put Jesus on display as character, but also to put Jesus' death for our sins on display and hope that our faith and our trust in Christ would grow. So here's kind of the application <laughs> phrase. Trust in Christ. Trust in his death. Jesus Christ and him crucified is all that we need for every aspect of our lives. If you have faith, trust in him even more. If you find yourself not believing in Jesus, I implore you to trust in Christ. Look again at verse 6. See the power of Christ on display. I am, and his enemies fall at his feet. And then look at verse 12, which is not in our text. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And ask yourself, how can one with so much power be bound? He was bound willingly in your place. So let's trust in the first Adam, the final Adam, who relived out our father Adam's life and perfectly obeyed God in the garden, in that second war of the garden. Let's believe in Yahweh who clothed himself in our flesh and defeated Satan and the powers of darkness. And finally, let's trust in Jesus who drank the cup of God's wrath on our behalf. And let's respond in worship and praise to his name. Let's pray. Um, Father, uh, again, every, every week uh, when one of us uh, pastors comes up here and preaches, we preach as, as men weak, as men who cannot possibly do justice to the beauty of your word and the beauty of your son Jesus. Lord, but you are a God who works powerfully through weakness of men. We ask that you would powerfully work through the words of Scripture, through our singing, through our taking of the Lord's Supper, through our proclamation of the gospel of the glory of Jesus, that you would have grace, you would have mercy upon us. And Lord, we pray that we would be able to see more of the significance and meaning of Jesus' death on the cross, and that we would respond with faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.